Christy had had a lot of say on what melting ice cubes look like. She said, I don't want it stiff and starched. She said, I want it bright and colourful. So she'd help choose all the colours and things. And she said, Mom, I know information's important. She said, but it's not the most important thing for me because I live with it and I feel it. She said, what do I want to read about it for? She said, but what I do want to do is live. She said, and I'm sick of hearing you can't do this. You won't be able to do that. She said, because I watch the Paralympics. I watch people who do amazing things, who have got impairment, and I want to see those people. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Before we begin, I wanted to share a little bit about the series, the story behind the series. So I've been interviewing on other podcasts and I've been networking with so many amazing people. And as I hear their stories and the experiences that they've had, I learn so, so much. And their stories have inspired me. And I, I have wished that I could share these stories and these nuggets that I'm getting with others. And so that's how this podcast began. And thanks to the nonprofit organization Reimagine, I have the opportunity to set up stage and record these podcast shows. This week's guest is my friend, Mulvia Maddox who is the author of Perfectly Flawed, a, mem- a memoir of her family's experience of ju- adjusting to the news that her daughter, Christy, had the genetic condition of Friedrich's ataxia. After many battles with medical professionals, Christy was finally diagnosed at age nine. In Christy's short 29 years, she lived an incredible and full life. Because of her experience with Christy and in honor of her, Mulvia founded Melting Ice Cubes Health, an organization to help other families facing the challenges of getting the resources and support they need. Mulvia, I love hearing yours and Christy's stories. You've experienced so much and have so much wisdom and insight to share. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak this evening. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be with you today. Thank you for being on the show. So before we get started, where can people find you and learn more about your story and Melting Ice Cubes? So as you say, we have meltingicecubes.com, which is our health platform. And there is a little bit of information about me on there. But, you know, I'm fairly active over social media. So there's my profile on LinkedIn, on Facebook, where people can find me there. And you can email me at mulvia.maddox or Mulvia, sorry, Mulvia at meltingicecubes.com. Wonderful. So, um, you can email me there as well. 
So can you share us share with us a little bit about your background of your story with Christie's life so that they have some kind of context about where we're coming from? Yeah, so I was, you know, like any other mom of several children. I, I had three children and, um, you know, I, I worked as well. And life was ordinary, um, except that my third child, Christy, so I'd got two sons and then I had a little bit of a gap and um, I'd had Christy. So there was five years between Christy and the, my youngest son, seven years between Christy and my oldest son. And um, it was, you know, I was so pleased to have a little girl after having the two boys. Um, and she was a, a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> she was always a very strong character and she ruled the roost. She ruled her big brothers <laughs> and she was, but she was tiny. She was very tiny, very slightly built. And um, over her first three years of life, there were just little, I don't know, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was just little imperceptible things to everybody else that I found quite strange. I noticed that her body had little tremors that would arise, that if she got cold, that she would really shake. And it didn't make sense to me. I mean, you know, I was one of the oldest of several children. I'd never seen that in any of my younger siblings. I'd never seen that in my two sons. And yet Christy had these little things and Sometimes she was quite stumbly. And I took take her to the doctors and, and say, I'm a little bit concerned about Christy. And put that together with the fact that she was always very low on the growth charts and on the weight charts. But they never seemed perturbed about anything because she was very bright and very articulate and full of energy. She was a bit like Tigger and a bottle of pop all rolled into one. And so they were never very concerned. And then as she got a little older, I'd taken her back again. So the last time probably when she was about four, four and a half. And um, again, they were not concerned at all. And instead, they started to question me and my mental health. And they felt that I was too focused on my little girl. Um, I'd also been through a divorce by that point. And so they, you know, a single mother used to get dropped into conversations. And I became quite concerned about the way that conversations were going. And so I stopped going to the doctors about my little concerns and worries. Yeah. And over the next few years, Christy continued to grow as children do, but her stumble, her stumble got worse. Mm-hmm. Her gait the way that she walked got worse so for example if you were walking along the pavement she couldn't walk in a straight line next to you so she'd end up bumping into you or she'd bump into the the walls and the gateways that you were passing or if she was on my um, left hand side she'd end up walking into the cars that were parked so there was definitely an issue in her being able to walk a straight line Mm-hmm. And then I remember watching her at a sports day and compared to the other children, she was really very stumbly. And teachers would say to me, Christy falls over nothing. There can be nothing there. And she falls over. Um, and those things did concern me, but I didn't take her back to the doctors because of the memories of some of the reactions that I got. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a, a few years and By this time, I'd remarried and I'd had my fourth child, Harrison. 
but my pregnancy had ended in a little bit of a um a shock I would say in that I developed placenta previa so I had been um, on bed rest in hospital um, until I could deliver the baby safely so I was away from home for 10 weeks altogether and when I got back home when you don't see somebody for a while you notice things even more don't you mm-hmm. when you live with them you stop noticing things and so I then noticed that her stumbliness was even worse. And I can remember the health visitor coming out to visit the baby. And um, when when she came to the house, I remember saying to her, oh, I'm not really concerned about the baby. You know, he's fine. He's absolutely fine. But please do look at Christy. And we had double doors into our lounge. So I opened the doors and I said, watch her walk through here. And as she walked through the door, she did it all the time. She'd bounce off one side. She couldn't walk through the middle because she'd stumble. Mm. So she'd hit one of the sides of the doorways. And then I said, watch her walk the length of the lounge. And I said, something is wrong. And again, she said to me not to worry, not to be concerned, that, you know, Christy had always been tiny compared to the boys and she was a dainty little girl. And so, again, I did nothing. Um, So this by now was a December time. And in the January, I decided I needed to take Christy in hand. She needed to learn to swim. She was eight years of age. Her brothers could swim really well. But despite all of my best efforts, Christy could not swim. So I remember saying to Christy, come on, we're going to go to swimming lessons again. So I took her for swimming lessons. And uh, being a busy mum as I was, I remember taking her to her first swimming lesson, getting her ready, seeing her into the pool, watching her for five minutes or so. And then I dashed to the post office to do some kind of job. And um, I got the baby with me in the carrier, did that job, got back to the pool, watched her for the last part of her lesson. And then she was getting out of the pool. And the swimming teacher came up to me and gripped me by the arms and said, what's the matter with your daughter? You know, I remember standing back and saying, there's nothing wrong with my daughter. And she went, no, there is something wrong. She said, she's so trembly. And I said, oh, yes, I know. I know. You know, I've been taking her to the doctors many times over the years Mm -hmm. and they always tell me there's nothing wrong. So I don't really know what to do. And she took me by the arms again and said, go to hospital now honestly and you can imagine my face and you know as she was talking it was just like a film everything around me faded the room went quiet and all I could see in front of me was her mouth moving and the words that she was saying and everything else was faded out and as she was talking I was thinking you're right there is something wrong. You've got to take her back. And then you suddenly back in the room. And I said, look, I understand what you're saying. I will take her, but I can't take her tonight. That's not the way the medical system works in England. You know that. But what I will do is I will make a doctor's appointment and I will take her as soon as I can. So I got home. I rang the doctors and asked for an appointment on Monday morning because this was a Friday. Okay. And they agreed to see me on the Monday morning. I took Christy along. 
explained what had happened to the doctor. And I said, you look, you know, look at her records. How many times did I bring her when she was little, a toddler, and when she was a young child? I said, but now somebody else has noticed. And he said, okay, then let me watch her walk. And she was so stumbly. And he said, oh, yes, she has got worse, hasn't she? Yeah, we'll, we'll refer her. And so, you know, within a, a month or so, we were up at the hospital and they did, they paid more attention to everything this time. I think especially when they tested her reflexes and her elbows and her knees and her ankles. Mm -hmm. And they were very, very low. And I heard one of the doctors say, she's got a very ataxic walk and they were muttering something about her reflexes. And then they looked at me and said, um, Mrs. Maddox, we, we're going to arrange for, for Christy to have a, a brain scan. Um, she'll need to have an MRI. And then once we've done that, we'll, we'll be able to talk to you more. Mm -hmm. And so I was sent away and about two weeks later, we were sent to a, a, a larger hospital close to where we live and she had an MRI. And I can remember watching her go into the machine and then watching her come out and helping her down off the table. And, you know, I ushered her, her out to my husband, her stepfather. And I said to the, the, um, the lady who was operating the machine, look, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I really needed you to tell me, did you see a brain tumour? And she looked a bit surprised at me. And I said, look at me, I I'm carb. I'm not going to break down or cry, mm -hmm. but I need you to tell me if you saw a brain tumour, because if you saw a brain tumour, we'll deal with it. I said, and I know there'll probably be surgery and things like that, but I'm thinking that probably it will be okay and that we can take that away and that she can go on to have a normal life. I said, but if you didn't see a brain tumour, I think there's something very wrong with my daughter. And I think it will be something that's quite difficult to manage and to live with. Yeah. And she studied me just for a few seconds. And then she looked at me and she said, I didn't see a brain tumour. And I said, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to the waiting room. We drove the hour, hour's journey home. And then she went into the house with um, my husband. And I said to him, look, you know, remember, this was 30 years, you know, what, 20 or 23, 24 years ago. And I, I said to him, look, I'm going to go up to the library. I need to do some research. Um, so will you look after the kids and I'll be back, you know, in a couple of hours. So I went up to the local town centre library. I went into the medical reference section and I pulled all the medical books off the shelves that I thought would be relevant. And I looked at terms like ataxia and just began to research. And I walked out of that session understanding that it was probably something genetic. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling my mother and talking to her and saying, but there's nothing wrong in our family. There's nobody with any genetic faults in our family. Well, I, don't, I don't understand this, but mom, I think there's going to be something like this wrong. And, you know, mom saying, well, no, I've never heard of anything. Anyway, as you do, you get on with the evening tea, homework, bed. And then it was probably about 10 o'clock at night when I sat down at the computer. And do you remember Jeeves? <laughs> I opened Ask Jeeves and began my search through the internet using the terms that I'd found at the library and the, the ones that I'd heard the doctor mention. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And eventually I came across a family in America, actually, and they were describing their little boy. And when I read that story, it was, it was our story. I could have written that mother's experience and just changed the name. Mm-hmm. And the condition that their little boy had was Friedrich's ataxia. And so I wrote it down and then I looked it up. And when I looked it up, I just knew she had this condition. And I knew that it meant her life was going to be completely different to anything that I had imagined. Yeah. And that it would be surrounded by risk and that it could be short. And so the next day I telephoned the consultant secretary and I said, um, could you ask Dr. Anderson, please? Is she checking Christy for Friedrich's ataxia? Because I believe that that's the condition she has. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, well, I'll pass the message on. And a few hours later, Dr. Anderson called me. And she said, I understand you've called my secretary and you've asked about a condition called Friedrich's ataxia. I said, yes. And she said, Mulvia, I can't tell you that she has Friedrich's ataxia. I do think your daughter has something obscure, but until the blood results come back, which we've taken, they've gone for full genetic screening, but it takes a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what she does have. But, you know, just be patient. And as soon as we know, we will let you know. And so it was probably about another six weeks before the results did come back. But one evening, I always remember it was a Thursday evening and it was about seven o'clock mm-hmm. and I had, was washing the and drying the, the dinner things. The children were milling around, you know, and I took the call and she said, hello, Molv here, it's Dr. Anderson. I said, oh, hello. I said, you're late, aren't you? She said, oh, yeah, I know. And she said, we've got her results. I said, okay. And she said, Mulvia, I have to tell you that Christy does have Friedrich's ataxia. I'm so sorry. And I said, oh, it's okay. I said, you know what? It's been like waiting for a bus. I knew it was going to come, but I just didn't know when. Thank you so much for ringing me to tell me in person. And um, yeah. It's okay. I've looked at it. I understand it. And I knew. I just knew. And she said, I know you did. And she said, well, look, I'll send you an appointment through the post and you can come in and you can talk to us and we can tell you what we know and the next steps. And that was how I found out. Christy was, by this time, just turned nine. And um, I can remember going into the hospital with Christy to meet the consultants and talk about it and they were you know examining her hands and her legs and she'd asked me lots of things over the the intervening months that this had taken and I always made the decision to be honest with Christy yeah to be honest but to try and manage the message so that she wasn't scared and we got back home from hospital and we were sat on the sofa and she said mum why did that doctor examine my hands today? She said, I know Friedrich's ataxia very often affects the legs. I know that. She said, but why my hands? So I took a breath and I said, well, why do you think, Christy? 
And she said, is it because it also affects the muscles in my hands and arms? And I said, sometimes it does, yes. And Christy then looked at me, her eyes were huge and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, mum, I don't care what it does to my legs. She said, because I can use a wheelchair, she said, and I'll be fine. But I want to be an artist. How am I going to paint if it takes my hands away? And she was crying. And, you know, I broke down and cried as well that day with her. And then when we'd finished, you know, I, I was hugging her and I said, Christy, do you know what? We don't know what's going to happen. I said, but you're such a strong little character. I'm sure you'll find a way to still do art. I said, could you imagine yourself on a stage in your wheelchair with paint and you would be wheeling around and there's an image behind you on a screen flashing up pictures of the art that you're making with your wheelchair? <laughs> she looked at me in disgust and she said, Mum, you're talking about modern art. And she said, I don't like modern art. She said, I like <laughs> fine art. She said, I want to be able to paint with my fingers. And then we actually ended up laughing. And I said to her, oh, Christy, I said, well, do you know what? I'm sure you'll find a way. I said, there are lots of people who manage to make beautiful art, painting with their mouths and things like that. I said, and we can't say now what things are going to happen, but you will find a way. Mm -hmm. and so for me, that started our journey on the road of Friedrich's Ataxia. And um, it did indeed bring a lot of change to our lives. And it did render Christy a wheelchair user when she was 15. And it did affect her hands. And for many years, she wouldn't paint. But once she got older and more mature, and once she'd accepted how things were, Christy took up her painting when she was in her late teens. And she made beautiful art despite her intention tremor of our hands. And it would take her hours to paint. And she would use every nerve that she had in her body to still that paintbrush. But she created beautiful images. And I remember saying to her, Christy, you're an artist because it's in you. And you see, you found a way. And she just smiled. That's beautiful. So many parts about that story scream you're an amazing mom <laughs> like asking her um when the doctors were looking at her hands why do you think they were looking at her hands and and allowing her to explore first um confirming that even though you don't know what's going to happen you will find a way to do it and supporting her every step of the way. And despite the challenges in the medical world, you kept persisting until you had the truth that you knew was there. I think that, you know, it was a very long journey. And intuition, we talk about intuition, don't we? And what that taught me more than anything was you should always trust your intuition and you should never give up. And in terms of Christy, she said some very insightful things as a child. And I remember when she got her diagnosis, she said, mom, she said, you know, I just thought I was a little bit weird. 
She said, because I could feel my body and I could feel that things were not quite right. And she said, I used to watch my classmates and I think, I don't think my body feels like yours does and it doesn't do the things that yours does. And she said, mom, it's a bit like if you're going to have a cold sore, you know, there's a tingle before anything happens and then it's there. And she said, I feel like I had a tingle and I knew something was going to come. And for me, what that did for me was to say, as a parent, you might think that the most protective thing you can do is to hide the truth or to not be honest because you love your child and you want to protect them, but you can't because they have a body and a mind that feels. And Christy said the hardest thing for her was when she thought nobody else understood and she questioned her own intuition. Mm. And for me, what I decided to do from day one was to always be honest, but to find the words and the best way of explaining something without making it scary. So, for example, she asked me, was she going to die? Now, this is a nine-year-old child looking up at you, who you love with all your heart, mm-hmm. saying, am I going to die? And I looked at her and I said, well, Christy, actually, we're all going to die. And she said, oh, mom, I know that. But am I going to die soon? And I said, well, I don't really know is the honest answer. I said, what I do know is that we now know you have Friedrich's ataxia. I do know that we will see lots of doctors and we will get lots of support. I do know that I can do a lot of research and we can look at alternative therapies and we can find ways to make your body feel strong in terms of we'll make sure you get all the right vitamins and everything so that your body can be as strong as it possibly can be. I said, but I don't know when you're going to die and I don't know when I'm going to die. I said, but think about it like this for a minute. I said, you know, there are people who left home this morning and they had a car accident. Or there is somebody who walked past somebody innocently in the street and caught a book like meningitis or something. And then next week they'll be really poorly and they won't be able to survive it. I said, or there might be somebody who has a heart attack today. I said, I'm not trying to frighten you, but I'm just trying to show you that every single person wakes up each morning and just expects life to be normal. But the reality is that none of us know. Mm -hmm. I said, so all we can do is what we do when we don't have anything to worry about, not think about it, just get up every single day and prepare to do whatever it is we need to do and just to enjoy that day. I said, and for you, it's exactly the same. I said, you know that you have Friedrich's ataxia. You know that we're going to try to do everything we can to support it and support you. But outside of that, the only thing that you can do every day is get up and decide to enjoy that day. I said you could decide to be really unhappy Mm -hmm. or you could decide to be happy. And, you know, she looked at me and she said, 
who's that man in the wheelchair on the television who has written that fabulous book about time and he speaks through a machine because his illness has made his voice go all funny and I said do you mean Stephen and she went yes Stephen Hawkins she went mom he's done amazing things hasn't he in spite of his illness she said do you know what I'm going to be like him she said, he's amazing. She said, he's affected the whole world and I'm going to be like him. And I think there and then, that nine-year-old little girl made some decisions about the way she was going to tackle her lot in life. And she just got on with it. And she faced all of her challenges. And I often used to think, how did she really feel living amongst four other siblings that were all well, heart, you know, well and hearty? Uh-huh. And how did she watch them getting on with life and never having to face the challenges that she did? And I asked her once, I said, how do you feel, Christy, being the one who has Friedrich's ataxia? Do you wish you didn't have it? And she said, no. She said, mom, Friedrich's ataxia is part of me. She said, I quite like me. She said, I like being me. So no, she's because I couldn't imagine being anybody else. So I'm fine. She said, and my brothers and sisters, she said, they've got their lives and I've got mine. And it's absolutely fine how it is. She said, but don't ask me not to be me because I like who I am. And I just thought that was absolutely, she was only about 12 then. And I just thought she was amazing. She was really amazing. So anything that I've been able to do is because of Christy. Because if she could be like that, then how could I be anything other than supportive and investigative in terms of looking up information and finding ways to, to help her? You know, my only job, I felt, was to advocate for her Mm-hmm. was to check every medical decision that was made to ensure that I believed it was the right thing for her and to challenge to get things that I believe she needed or different ways of approaching things and to also challenge society because yeah. although Christy had this challenge she had a brain and a will And just because society didn't think that you should be able to do things or could, I wanted Christy to be able to do whatever it was that she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that the doors were opened and that we thought very carefully about how we act in society and how we organise things. And so that really changed the lens of my life, to be honest. It opened my eyes to as I say, challenging, advocating and striving to drive change for inclusion. And um, that's what what I've done. So amazing. Your life and Christy's life and the way that you've supported each other and learned from each other. Incredible. Yeah. How has your grief changed along your journey? Like from diagnosis through through Christie's death and, and where you are now? I think the grief that came when I realised that she had Friedrich's ataxia 
And when I understood that this was a neurological degenerative condition that was going to really change her life. And I understood the type of challenge that she would follow. It was like getting on a plane where you think you're going to, I don't know, the Bahamas, <laughs> somewhere beautiful and sunny, but you didn't get there. You arrived in Siberia and you didn't have a fur coat and you didn't have anywhere to stay and you'd got a case full of bikinis <laughs> and no warm clothes. Mm -hmm. You know, it felt like that in a way. Um, a shock, a big shock. Yeah. Your hopes and dreams for your child suddenly changed completely. But, you know, if you travelled to Siberia and you'd got a fur coat and you stayed in a warm igloo or something and there was a fire in there and you had a hot cup of cocoa, it would have its own charms mm -hmm. <laughs> and it would have its own beauty. And I think that, that, that's what it was like for me with Christy growing up, you know, between the ages of nine and um, up until she went to university and graduated at 21. Although those years were full of challenge, Christy was really quite able in her way. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a different kind of journey. No, no less beautiful than the journey of my other children. It had its accomplishments, it had its successes. And, you know, you find joy in those things. Alongside that, as a mum, there was the fear that today would be the day she died because I was very starkly told when she was about nine or 10 that her heart was already impacted by the condition and that probably the biggest risk to her was heart failure. Mm. And therefore no day was promised. Um, and so as a mum, yeah, there was always the fear that was it going to be today that mm -hmm. she would die? Um, but you kind of just put that to one side because you have to. How else can you manage? You know, I had other children. So it wasn't all just about Christy. I had other children. I had my work. You have your parents life. And if you focus too much on the grief, then you'll shut down. And I couldn't afford to do that. So you just get on with it. And then for the middle years, um, sorry, not really the middle years, the end years. So between the ages of, say, 22 to when she died, 29, those last seven years were quite difficult in a different way because Christie's condition really began to take hold. And so, you know, things changed such as, we converted our garage into an adapted home for her. Um, she didn't want me to be her main carer because she wanted her dignity and privacy. Mm -hmm. And so we had care, support come into her home and support her. But she didn't want it 24-7 because she was independent. She'd been away to university. She got first in her degree. You know, she was very clever, but she just wanted support at, at key times. So for me, the grief during that time was a little bit more intense because we were quite often in situations where we were by ambulance to hospital and she would be in hospital and you would wonder whether she would come home and you were watching the very real change in her physically. And that was quite difficult. And then the final grief in her last six weeks 
So there's lots of a, there's a lot of background to everything that happened with Christy in the last few years. And quite often it was driven by doctors not listening to us. Mm. You know, and you've got to remember if you've got a chronic degenerative illness that affects multiple parts of your body and you live with lots of comorbidities, not one single thing, but many, mm-hmm. you don't have a doctor that looks at you as a whole person. You have a doctor or consultant that looks at his specialism, his silo. And so you become the expert in that person's condition because you have the overarching view and you see everything, not just one little part. And so I think over those last few years, grief changed because it became quite intense. Um, If you can imagine carrying an egg on your palm of your hand and you're trying not to let it roll off. That's what it felt like because a lot of times we were disputing what doctors were saying. We were begging to be kept in hospital because we felt things were worse than they could see from an examination. And quite often if we won the battle for her to stay, eventually their machines would say that we were right. But her last time that this happened, meant that she ended up in the cardiology ward and we knew that her time was short and she spent four weeks there. So that four weeks in the hospital, the grief was knowing that the end of her life was upon you. Mm -hmm. And you question yourself about the things that you've done over the years. Well, should I have worked? Should I have stayed with her more? All those kinds of things. And then the intensity of some of the pain that she went through and how her body reacted to different things was hard to take. And Christy had made a decision that, in her words, to a consultant, she said, for the last couple of years, every time we've come to hospital, we've had to fight to get in. She said, and that delay has always left me going home with less than I came in with. And I'm now in the situation where, you know, my hands don't work properly. I can't type. I can't paint. I can't feed myself. Um, I'm hoisted for everything. And I'm in a lot of pain. And then even when I come for help, you don't listen. And she said, the quality of my life is really low. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to do is I want you to reduce my meds slightly. And I want you to let my body do what it needs to do. If it didn't have all of this support, I want you to let it shut down. You can imagine the pushback that we got and doctors saying to me, you know, Mrs. Maddox, you need to talk to your daughter and you need to tell her that she, and I said, excuse me, just stop. (laughs) She's a young woman, she's 28, and she has a brain. And you need to listen to what she's saying to you. Mm -hmm. And I have to listen to her. Mm -hmm. I said, of course, I would love to just hang on to her for the rest of my life. But that's not my gift to do that. She has the right to make her decisions. And so after being interviewed by psychologists, both of us, Christy was allowed to move to Compton Hospice and there through the same rigorous process of interviews and 
you know, questioning, Christy got her wish. So slight adjustments made to her medication. And I can remember her saying, and you know, I don't really want to suffer a lot. She said, so if you think I'm going to suffer a lot, then just give me lots of drugs and let me go to sleep. And then we can't do that. And she said, well, that's okay. She said, but just reduce my meds enough and my body will close down because it's poorly. And so it took 15 days for that to happen. And um, that was a very different kind of grief that last 15 days because, yeah, I knew. I knew mm. that, you know, she was definitely going to go. Yeah. And there were times I wanted to pick her up and run out with her and take her home and say, you're not, you're staying. But it, you don't get, you don't have the right you don't have the right to make those choices for people. Christy was very intelligent and she was very strong and she was very independent. And love sometimes means that you have to put your opinions to the back seat mm -hmm. and you have to let that person have their choice. And I think that, you know, she passed away and the grief hit me like a ton of bricks and you get out of bed in the morning and you feel that life is just not worth it even though I had other children because as a mum your life is wrapped up in your in your children and nothing felt right you know one of mine was missing yeah you know every photograph every family gathering she's not there and there's a gap Mm -hmm. But I think two and a half years on, it is strange how you learn to live with these things. So it doesn't feel as intense as it did. Yeah. Life doesn't feel normal. My life will never feel normal again. Mm -hmm. You know, I miss Christy all the time. I wonder about her. I think about her. But I can't bring her back. Right. And so what am I going to do? You know, I made a decision a year ago, actually, on my 58th birthday, because I was my grief had got to such a state that I was really, really low. And I was thinking about suicide and just giving up on my own life. And I thought, you can't do that. You have other children who you love and who deserve to have you here. You've got grandchildren. And Christy said to you, Mum. I'm asking you, please, don't go to pieces when I'm not here. Know that for me, this is the right thing and that I am happy in my decision. And I've had a wonderful life and I've done all the things that I wanted to do, but I don't want to do any more. And I need you to promise me that you're going to be okay. So I had made her that promise. And on my 58th birthday, I started to write a daily post called 58 plus a year to be consciously happy. Mm -hmm. And my premise was that if I made myself every day think about something positive and something to be happy about, that I would become happier. <laughs> and it worked, you know, it, it has it has really changed how I think completely. Yeah. Within just a month of starting that, I do feel entirely different. And it's not that I, I feel sad every day when I think about her and uh -huh. I miss her, but it is different. 
Because in spite of that, there are things to be happy about every single day. And so I'm nearly at the end of my journey, you know, on the 11th of November, I'll be 59 and there's my year gone. Mm -hmm. Um, But it achieved what I wanted it to do. It, It changed my perspective. It hasn't taken away the grief in one sense because it can't undo what has happened. Right. What it has done is enable me to see that life isn't about always having sunshine. It isn't about always having sunlight. I'm looking at the dark night sky here in the UK today and the sky is going to be there dark every night, but there will be stars in it. And sometimes there's the moon. And I think in every single day that's a little bit bleak because Christy's not here, there are stars and there is moonlight. And sometimes it's a full moon and sometimes it's just a little bit of a moon, but it's the moon nonetheless. And so I feel that um, I carry on each day now with probably just a sharper lens on life to enjoy the little things. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't sweat the small stuff. I think about people. I look at people and I think, I wonder what is happening in your life? Because I know that people who didn't know what I was going through would look at me and not understand sometimes the terrible issues that I'd left or that I'd just come away from the hospital and had some really difficult conversations with consultants yeah so I just think be kind Mm -hmm. be kind be supportive of people look for the little pleasures in life that don't cost anything and to just do what Christy did you know enjoy every day and um, that's what I try to do those are some valuable, um, valuable tools that everybody can use. Find gratitude, be kind, be supportive, look for the stars, even when the night is dark. I think so. And I think one of the things that we did together, if we roll right back to the beginning of the story, what I needed was information. When, when Christy was a child. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult, isn't it, the medical world? It's a language you don't understand, terminology we don't understand. And information was really, really important to me. And then once I did get the diagnosis, the fact that this caused multiple other conditions, <laughs> I needed information all the time. And I needed that information if I was going to have an intelligent conversation with medical people. Right. I needed to understand their language. You know, I needed to speak French. I needed Mm -hmm. to speak medical language. I needed to be able to join up the dots so that I could adequately advocate for Christy. Mm -hmm. And that meant me often spending hours on the computer. Now, I was a mum of five. I was working. I had a home to run. And so that meant that very often I was switching a computer on I don't know, half 10, 11 o'clock at night and sitting on it till one, two o'clock in the morning, literally. 
And that's just not me, but I mean, that's everybody who's in similar situation, whether you're, you're looking for your child or whether you're a person, an adult who gets given a diagnosis, you need information. And Google was the tool that we eventually all came, you know, come to love. <laughs> and Ask Jeeves has gone, but we have Google. But for me, it was still a very difficult world to navigate. And I kept asking why. Why is it so hard? Even when I use Google, it's really hard. And so I had this view that we could make a platform that did a lot of the hard work, mm-hmm. did the heavy lifting in search. And so um, we decided to create the health platform, meltingicecubes.com. But do you know, it took me about 13 years to find developers who could understand what I was talking about and who would stay with us to develop what was needed. And we launched, this is such an irony, we did a soft launch of the platform on the very day Christy that night went into hospital, which was to prove to be her last few weeks of life. And Christy had had a lot of say on what melting ice cubes looked like. She said, I don't want it stiff and starched. She said, I want it bright and colourful. So she'd help choose all the colours and things. And she said, Mom, I know information's important. She said, but it's not the most important thing for me because I live with it and I feel it. She said, what do I want to read about it for? She said, but what I do want to do is live. She said, and I'm sick of hearing you can't do this. You won't be able to do that. She said, because I watch the Paralympics. I watch people who do amazing things, who have got impairment, and I want to see those people. So part of our platform is a search called Everyday Life. And if you click on Everyday Life, it brings up what I call life boxes, So there's travel, education, uh, work. And if you click on a life box, our algorithms pull in video content. A lot of it is from YouTube. But there you see people who talk about their condition and how they work with it or traveling with it or how they've managed education. And that's what Christy wanted to see. She wanted to see people living. You know, that's what she wanted. And our algorithms are written in such a way that we go out to the the web and we pull in content from trusted sources. It's all trusted. And we bring in all of the information. And for me, it's as if I think about the library. So for me, it's as if I've got all this information from all different sources. But instead of having it in a jumble, I've put it into, into drawers or onto shelves organized so if you type a condition into our platform then you will get lots of information sources all related to the condition that you have put in and then it's one click so instead of spending hours type it in and there you go it's all there and you know that's just the first part of our platform we've also got the ability on there to create support groups if you want to and uh, so you can connect with other people we signpost um support around you mm-hmm. and we're hoping that over you know the next year or so that those areas of, of the platform will grow and the communities will form because that is what you need you need information so that you can understand and you can challenge and you can mm-hmm. self-advocate 
um, I, I think the World Health Organization calls it health literacy. Yeah. And it says that if you've got health literacy, you enjoy better health outcomes, you know, than if you're confused. Right. And uh, we think think that is really valuable. And even in terms of reducing the cost of healthcare, if somebody sits in front of a medical person and doesn't understand what is being spoken and then walks away with, it doesn't matter what medication you give them, if they're a bit hesitant and didn't understand and don't trust and don't take that medication, what a waste of money. Mm -hmm. What a waste of resources. But if somebody has sat there and had a conversation that they've been involved with and fully understands what is being said and is actively involved in the decision making, then they walk out of that consult and they use the resources that are given to them Mm -hmm. and they actively manage and therefore they get a better health outcome. Absolutely. So melting ice cubes is a resource there that is at the beginning of its journey. And I, when I look at it, I, I hear Christy's voice. <laughs> I know what she wanted. And I feel that it's a living, a living part of her that's still here. And I can remember in her last, her last three weeks, actually, I was showing the platform to her and she was looking at it and she said, we did it. And I said, I know we did. And she said, it's great, mom. She said, and I'm just so pleased that other people are going to have the help that we could have done with. She said, and you might have got a few extra hours sleep (laughs) (laughs) if you just had this. So, yeah. That is such an incredible resource. To To be able to not only have the information that you need to have an intelligent, intelligent and active conversation with your medical people, but also have the inspiration to live each day fully. Absolutely. I think it's a beautiful merge of, of taking something that you don't absolutely don't have control over and doing the best that you can with that and also creating what you do have control over. Exactly. And the power of the mind is amazing, isn't it? You know, if you've got a positive attitude, then you will achieve far more than if you believe you can't do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that is perhaps one of the criticisms that I would have about medicine's view is that, you know, you're given a bunch of leaflets when you get a diagnosis and inevitably they talk about, you know, the, the end of life the things that you can't do, but they never account for the human spirit. (laughs) The human spirit is amazing. There are so many people who are alive who are confounding doctors' diagnosis because their own mind is so powerful that it compels them to go on. And even with Christy, you know, her condition, there's a number of measures for it, but she had a very high number of repeats of a fault on her gene. And um, that meant that the condition was going to be fast and it meant that the condition was going to affect a lot of things. You could have Friedrich's ataxia and just have a few repeats. So that means it would take much longer to impact you and maybe not impact as many things. So really, Christie's condition 
who knows who knows how she got she got just 29 years but some people don't get 29 years so maybe it was because she was very positive you know she she did she didn't wake up each day saying woe is me and this is terrible and i'm not going to be able to do xyz you know she would not use the term disabled she said i live with impairment and she said i just find different ways to do things i find ways around obstacles and i am still really able i'm just differently able so i think maybe if you have information and you can see other people who are living active lives with the condition that you have it helps to drown out some of the noise that society makes about their expectations of what is right and what you need to be able to live a fulfilled life and i think those things are really important and you know maybe my view when she was a child in refusing to be to take her diagnosis as, as an end mm-hmm. for me i couldn't do that because she was a little girl <laughs> you yeah. know children grow up and develop and so I didn't want to close her down I always wanted to say to her which I did you can find a way you can do whatever you want to do if you think about things and if you find your way and I think that we do need to do this more we we sit and watch the Paralympics don't we and we marvel the wonderful achievements but really we should do that all the time we should not look at a person and categorize them and think well they don't they won't be able to we should always give everybody the opportunity and the belief that if you want to do something you can find a way how incredible would that be if everybody or even if if we just did it like one percent more Yes. If everybody did that 1% more, how incredible yes. would our world be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> I think that's an excellent topic to end on. You can do whatever you put your mind to it. You can. I, I, that's what I believe. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk. It's always lovely to talk about Christy, you know, because... The longer somebody is not here, the more you lose the permission to speak about them, really, because people are always guarded and worried about upsetting you and don't want to cause you pain. But it's fantastic to be able to talk about her. So thank you for giving me that opportunity and this space. You're welcome. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that every person will have their own way of coping with challenge Mm -hmm. but I think that just know that for each and every one of us we think we will never be able to cope with things but actually the human spirit is absolutely amazing and when we need to cope with things we do so just have faith in yourself just have faith in you awesome So again, where can people find you, Movia? As I say, you can visit Mm meltingicecubes.com. You can find me on LinkedIn under Movia Maddox. 
You can find me on Facebook under Mulvia Maddox. You can email me at mulvia at meltingicecubes.com. And um, also I had written a book called Perfectly Flawed, um, which tells our experience of those early years. And I really wrote that for other families who might be in similar circumstances and who are wondering, how do I cope? How mm -hmm. do I tell my child? How do I support them? So there's that there as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing yourself so vulnerably and openly and your yeah. hopes, your dreams, your spirit, your intuition, your wisdom. Thank you. No, You're thank so you amazing. The opportunity. Thank you. So if you enjoyed this, join us next time in our journey of exploring humanity one heart at a time. And if you want, you can donate to the program so we can continue have more conversations like these in the future. And I'll put those um, that link in the show notes. And if you want to hear other episodes, you can visit my website, grievingcoach.com to see previous episodes and see more of my work too. And I think that's all for today. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you. Bye. It's been another amazing conversation here on Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you listeners for tuning in and receiving these stories. If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. If you are struggling with grief and would like to make it more manageable, schedule a call through my website, grievingcoach.com, and I will give you one tool that you can implement today. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters, so share your story.